You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 17, you'll remember from the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been dealing with Abram and Sarah's deviation from God's plan as they tried to include an alternate route to having children. God had promised children, uh, but there was some speculation that maybe... um, God had not intended to use Sarah as the mother of Abram's offspring. And so there was some confusion. And so there lied with Sarah this idea that let's bring in another woman and let's have her have the children. And then I'll take the children from her. And then God can bring about all of these plans that he has. And so um, that that was the plan that kind of unfolded in Genesis chapter 16. Um, We saw that the distrust there by Abram and Sarah led to just a great uh, issue in the family there, as there was a lot of um, jealousy and pride that kind of played out between Sarah and Hagar, and it led to Hagar being banished, um, and or or she kind of initiated that banishment. She flees and decides that she's going to go back to, to Egypt, and uh, she doesn't want anything to do with Abram's family anymore. And uh, it was there last week that we saw that God seeks her out, that we serve a God who sees our distress, and he comes to us in our distress, and he consoles us. And he brings about conviction where we're wrong. We saw last week that um, he was a God of compassion and that he came to her, but he was a God of conviction and that he reminded her that she had a responsibility to submit to the authorities over her, um, whether they were treating her right or not. And it's a reminder to us that we have authorities over us. We have uh, bosses at our jobs that maybe don't always treat us the way that we should be treated, that we have a responsibility to submit to them because God tells her to go back to go back to Sarah and to submit to her. But he's a God of consolation as well as he reminds or or informs her that he has plans for Ishmael, uh, her son, that he's going to bless him and take care of both of them. And so uh, we learned some things about God last week in the midst of um, just an awful situation where um, some distrust led to uh, just some real disunity and division within that family. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 17 today. Um, And so I want to turn your attention there. I told you we're going to cover the entire chapter today. We are going to read through it. Um, We're not going to cover every individual verse, um, but we are going to try to capture the idea and the main points that are revealed to us in this chapter. So starting in verse 1 there of Genesis chapter 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, 
Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day. As God had said to him, Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us, help us to understand the importance of the promises that were made here to Abraham, the implications of those promises. I pray that we would be able to wrap our minds around the God that we serve today. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to study it together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would go before us and bring about encouragement and conviction where it's needed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For our summary sentence this morning, to give you an idea of where we're going today, God reveals himself as a sovereign, omnipotent being that is fully capable of fulfilling the great plans that he promises to his children. God reveals himself as a sovereign, omnipotent being that is fully capable of fulfilling the great plans that he promises to his children. Here in Genesis 17, we find that um, as we read through it, Abraham is, is 99 years old now. Um, and as we continue to read through the text, we learn that Ishmael is now 13 years old. So between the last two chapters, 16 and 17, and this is important to note, between those two chapters, more time passes than all the time that we've been looking at of Abram's life so far. So we pick up with Abram's life when he's old, when he's 75 years old, and, and he and Sarah get called out from their home Go to a land that I'm going to show you. And so we've talked about a lot of stories there, going down to Egypt. We've talked about the discussion with Lot. We've talked about him going and rescuing Lot. We've talked about this covenant that God cut with him. All right. The time frame that that all, all those things take place in a shorter amount of time than the silence that takes place from 16 and 17. Sometimes we get in the trap of just reading through scripture and thinking these things just happen every other day. You know, it's not a TV show where they get a new episode every week kind of thing. All right, this is 13 years that passes, and we don't have any indication that God was doing any type of visual or vocal type interaction with Abraham. Not to say that God wasn't active in Abraham's life for 13 years. We just don't have any 
any indication that God stepped into time and dealt with him specifically on a personal level during those 13 years. All right, so it's important as we get into this chapter to note that some serious time has passed since God and Abraham have discussed things together. Um, God's initial promises were made 23 years ago at this point. So it's been about 23 years since Abram was first called from his land. And I want you to just stop and pause for a second. I want you to think about what you were doing 23 years ago. 23 years ago. So everybody just pause for a second and see if you can do the math and figure out what life looked like 23 years ago. Some people weren't born yet, right? So um, others of us would fall at different points in our time. I was in middle school um, 23 years ago. Um, And what's crazy to think about is that Abraham received promises that he was told to believe and really hadn't seen much fulfillment of those promises for 23 years. So for me, it's like me getting a promise in middle school and saying, okay, Adam, I'm going to do this for you, and then not seeing much until today. That's a huge time gap. That's a huge call to faith for somebody to have to believe what God has said and then not really seeing a whole lot of fulfillment. Now, again... God has shown up and continued to reiterate those promises, right? He hasn't just been completely silent. He's, he's moved him into a land. But remember, at this point, Abraham's still living in tents. He doesn't really possess the land. He's, he's dwelling there, but, but he is far outnumbered by everybody else that lives in the promised land. He still doesn't have any children of his own with Sarah. 23 years has passed. You know, we talk about Abram's faith, and there's some highs and lows, and when you think about it in those terms, it, it, it may be that he should be more exalted for his faith than criticized like we do sometimes towards him. Uh, many of us may not have remained as faithful as he over the course of 23 years, waiting and waiting and waiting for God to fulfill promises. Not just promises like Jesus is coming back and you're kind of left with, I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime or not. These are things that Abraham was told will happen in your lifetime. And then 23 years pass and he still hasn't seen really a whole lot of movement in that direction. So it kind of helps set the context for even why Abraham would laugh at this point. Like, are you, are you still talking about that? Like, are you still, I'm still supposed to believe that a child's coming. It's been 23 years since I first heard that promise. Um, and I, and I still haven't seen a lot of movement in that direction. Um, let's see here. All right. So God is silent for 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. God's initial promises and call took place 23 years ago at this point. God's timing is always based on the fullness of time. And I think that's helpful for us to remember. Um, we, we know in Galatians 4 that, that you know, thousands of years had passed since the first promises about the coming Redeemer. That the Messiah was going to come and, and rescue people from their sin. Thousands of years passed. This long delay before Jesus comes. And we know from Galatians 4 that it was in the fullness of time at the exact right moment that God shows up and and brings Jesus to this earth in physical human form. In Psalm 107, if you want to jot this passage down, we're not going to read it because it's a little lengthy, but in Psalm 107, it's a strong reminder that God always seems to push us to the brink before he really shows up so that he receives all the glory for it. There's several uh, indications there of, of people that were pushed to the very last point 
uh, and then God shows up and wins the victory for him. Psalm 107, it's an encouraging passage that reminds us that even in the midst of darkness, that God is still present. God is still ready to move and to act for the good of his people. So God shows up here in Genesis 17. Uh, again, if we're reading through the passage, we don't feel like he's really gone anywhere because he was just talking to Hagar and Abram and uh, blessing them with a child. But in Genesis 17, 13 years later, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. In the original language, this is the name for God, El Shaddai. Um, it's a controversial name that there's not a clear uh, translation, not a clear understanding of what this really means. Most people translate it to mean God Almighty. Um, it pops up again throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's a strong name for God. It's a way that he reveals himself to Abram to indicate that all the promises he continues to make, he's fully capable of keeping those promises, that he is the God Almighty. He does possess the sovereign power to accomplish these things. Um, the emphasis is being placed here through this name on God's sovereign, omnipotent power, that all things are possible with him. All things are possible with the God that we serve, which what we find in the Old Testament, that's a terror to the wicked. Uh, it's a terror to the wicked to know that we serve a God that is capable of anything. It, it's a restful, peaceful understanding for those that are righteous, for those that have been called by him to serve a God that's capable of anything. Um, this is also uh, the name that, that describes a God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. The emphasis being placed on his ability to accomplish things. This is also the name that the patriarchs came to understand for God. So in Exodus chapter 6 verse 3, when, when God is talking to Moses, he connects the fact, I'm the same God that you've heard about with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I revealed myself as the God Almighty to them. I'm that same God that's now revealing myself to you as Yahweh. Okay, so uh, this is how God revealed himself to the, the patriarchs, and they certainly needed to understand God as a God Almighty. Abraham and Sarah were old and, and advanced in years and didn't have children. All right? Um, there was things that had to be worked out in Isaac and Jacob's life uh, for them to, to understand how God planned to fulfill his promises to them. And so God was very faithful in the way that he revealed himself. Um, the all-powerful, all, really you could kind of summarize this, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet every need. That's how he reveals himself here to Abraham. He says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He goes on to talk about him being exceedingly fruitful and nations and kingdoms coming from him. One commentator uh, summarized this passage and, and said that basically this is what God is telling Abram. He says, I am able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I have set before you of a people and a land. There is no need to let go of the promise because of your old age. See, Abram has come to a point now where, where maybe this isn't going to happen. Uh, maybe I'm not going to experience these things. There's no need to succumb to passive desperation. We saw that in chapter 16. There was some desperate uh, desperation there between Abram and Sarah. Hey, we're going to die before we have a kid. God is reaffirming to Abram, you don't have to, to fall prey to passive desperation. There's no need to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts either. either. See, he's going to continue to come back to this idea 
Let's just use Ishmael. Let's just use my servant who, who's been adopted into my family. We can fulfill the promises through these guys. God says, no, we're not going to scale down these promises to match your thoughts. No need to resort to fleshly expedience. No need of trying to fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Everything, all your life, all your future lies in this. I am God Almighty. And that same message rings true for us today. That God has plans in place for us and promises that he's made that he will fulfill to the uttermost. A.W. Tozer tells us that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think Abram receives this message from God because God wants this concept of him being the Almighty to be what rings true in Abram's mind. That when, when Abram sits back and talks about God, talks about him to his wife and to his kids, that he is described in a way that reveals him to be the Almighty. Um, he wants Abram's children and his people to respond and to follow him in a way that demonstrates he's the Almighty. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And God reveals himself in such a way that he is the Almighty, that he continues to make these promises to Abram and he continues to plan to fulfill these promises in exactly the way that he's unfolded them previously. So in looking at this, God is the maker of this covenant. He once again establishes these promises with Abram, uh, but then he can, can, continues to unfold the plans for these promises. Um, the beneficiary of the covenant. What we see here is God begins to, to talk about Abram and to Sarah and the plans for Isaac is that there's some name changing that takes place here. First of all, the name change, not a name change per se, but a, a new name for God being revealed here, that he's the almighty God. But then we see Abram and Sarah both experiencing a name change. When, when names are changed in scripture, it's always a transformation of character. Can we think of some other people's uh, names that were changed in scripture? All right, Saul's name changed to Paul. There's, a, uh, there's kind of a changing of the guard there of what, is, what he was doing in his previous life to his salvation. Peter's name is changed um, from, from Simon to Peter. And, and God kind of affirms that, Jesus affirms the fact that he is going to use Peter to be the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation of his church. Uh, Jacob is one who experiences a name change as well. Jacob, who uh, we'll see as we read through Genesis and study, is really just a, a, a deceiving type individual, uh, just a sneaky, tricky, um, uh, deceptive type of person, right? Like if, if he was to, uh, you know, if he was to be uh, in, in my middle school, he's the guy that you would kind of label, watch out for that guy. That guy's typically up to no good. He, he, he's he's kind of snaky, kind of sneaky. And, and Jacob gets a name change, right? He gets a name change. You're now going to be called Israel, your name is going to be the one that the people moving forward will bear. All right? Name changing always seems to in indicate a transformation of character. And then name giving always indicates lordship or ownership. Right? There's this, this mindset that, that I'm responsible for this person. Right? Most of us don't leave the naming of our children up to just random people. Right? Most of us don't put up polls on Facebook or social media and say, what should I name my child? I'm going to give you the, the ability to do that. Right? Most of us take that responsibility ourselves. There's a level of ownership, a, a level of lordship over our children. They've been entrusted to us. We're the ones that are going to raise them and be responsible for them. Um, and so there's a, an ownership tied to that. And so when God comes in here and changes names, there's a transformation of character, but also a, a transformation of ownership. There's a, a mindset where Abram and Sarah now need to see themselves completely submitted to the Lord God Almighty. 
Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, the name Abram means exalted father. And it now becomes uh, a meaning where Abraham is attached to him. It means a father of a multitude. A father of a multitude. People calling his name now would remind him of these promises to come. A father of a multitude. It may have been a very difficult thing for Abram to accept as well. Um, depending on how many people understood the, the, the meaning of names. Here you have Abraham or Abram, exalted father. Uh, a father supposedly of many, and he doesn't have any children, and just recently has Ishmael through someone who's not his wife, and and now he's supposed to go and and tell everybody, I have a new name. I'm I'm a father of a multitude. Um, this would have been potentially hard for him to to go in and tell everybody because because God doesn't blast this on the internet. Hey, everybody, start calling this guy Abraham. Abram's the one that's going to have to go tell everybody, Hey, I have a new name. Oh, what's your name? Father of a multitude. You have one child. Like, why would you think that that's an appropriate name for yourself? Um, and yet, by expressing that, expressing that to others, it's a proclamation of his belief in these promises. Now, my name's Abraham. God has made promises to me, father of a multitude, and that's what's coming in my future. Okay? Um, Abram's response to all of this, as we saw reading through the text, is laughter. Um, it says down in, uh, let's see here. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's interesting that there's no rebuke here to the laughter, and so it's caused many to speculate whether this is a laughing of doubt or a laughing of joy. Um, And Commentators are kind of split on it. I, I, I probably see maybe a mixture there because in other passages of Scripture we see that Abram didn't waver regarding God's promises, that he, he, he continued to believe, continued to hold to it. But uh, even in believing it, there may have been a sense of laughter. You know, I, I believe this, but when I hear you say it, it just it genuinely sounds funny that, that I'm supposed to have a child and that my wife, who's 90 years old, is supposed to have a child. And so I think there's probably a mixture of, of some doubt, but then also some joy in knowing that it's been 13 years. And, and here's, again, an opportunity for me to hear from you that this is coming um, and so probably a level of excitement for Abraham as well. Um, but he does propose kind of that easier path once again to God, that, um, that there's an individual who's available that can be this chosen one that can receive everything. He, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God responds and says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He goes on to tell him that he will take care of Ishmael, that he will bless Ishmael. Um, but that Isaac is to be the chosen one for this covenant. Um, I think this probably reveals a deep love for Ishmael that Abram has. This isn't just a guy that, that he wants to just cast off. I mean, he's, he's raised Ishmael. Ishmael, for us, would be a middle schooler. But for him, he's really reached the age where he's almost to adulthood now for, for, for that time and that culture. And so Abram, I think, had a, had a genuine deep love and appreciation for his son. Um, and for those of us that have... Uh, have boys that have raised boys and are, or raising boys to 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 think that this is the, this is my firstborn this is my firstborn son this is the one that'll get everything of of me and then to be told it's not him I'm going to give you someone else and, and, and to think that Abram you know advanced in years 100 years old he's raised a 13 year old that he's ready to kind of move into adulthood and then being told he's got to start all over again with a newborn 
And you've got to reinvest yourself in a boy that's going to be the chosen one. Everything you've taught Ishmael now needs to be retaught to another son. He's the chosen one. Um, and so Abram is, is wrestling through his love for Ishmael, wanting to see Ishmael receive blessings from God and to be included in God's plan, but also probably experiencing some additional joy over knowing that he's going to have another son as well. It's not just Abram, though, that gets a new name. Sarah gets a new name as well. It says in verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Her new name means princess. Um, there's not a clear understanding of what her name previously meant. Her name change in the original language as far as how it's written isn't drastically different. So I don't know that there's a huge shift in the meaning of her name as much as it is an inclusion in the plan vocally by God now. Up to this point, it had been all about Abraham and how God was going to give to Abraham. But now Sarah is absolutely included in this. Um, it solidifies her as a part of God's covenant plan regarding this promised seed. She will be the mother of kings. Um, this this uh, kingly language probably alludes to the monarchy of David that would be coming, but ultimately Jesus. In Genesis chapter 49, we're going to look at a couple other passages that continue this idea of kingship coming through the line of Abraham. In uh, Genesis 49.10, this is uh, Jacob talking uh, to his sons. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So this indication that the kingly line will, will come from Judah. In Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. This is a covenant made with David. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. Isaiah chapter nine. These are all fulfillments of this promise to Abram and Sarah initially in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six through seven. For to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's what hap that happens on um, Palm Sunday when, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The people acknowledging him uh, as a king, acknowledging him as this ruler, wanting to see him fulfill these things that have been waited for ever since these promises were made to Abram. Um, that kings and, and ultimately a great king would come from his line. Sarah's faith becomes the channel for being included into this. She is, like we said last week, incapable of having children. That she's not the, uh, that Abraham was not the problem. He's able to have kids once you brought another woman into the picture. She's the one that seems incapable of having children. And it's in Hebrews 11, verse 11, that we're reminded of her faith. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised the indication here is that it wouldn't matter how many men had paraded before her she was not going to have a child at this point that natural means were out of the question she was incapable of bearing children but through her faith 
faith in the promises of God that she was going to be included, that the baby was going to come from her. God gives her the power, the supernatural power to conceive this child, Isaac. So she's a woman of great faith as well, revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 11. But in talking about the beneficiaries of the covenant, we see a a correlation between Isaac and Ishmael. One receives uh, the covenant blessing. One is excluded from it. What we do find in Genesis 17, which would have been, I imagine, huge um, confirmation and encouragement to Abraham, is that uh, Isaac is to be born within the next year, the text tells us. Uh, that his birth is now confirmed. His name is now confirmed. Sarah will give birth within the year. So years and years have passed, 23 years. When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Is this the one that's chosen? Is this the one that's chosen? And now God comes with specific details. There's a son coming from Sarah. His name is to be Isaac, and he'll be here within the next year. Abram's faith continues to increase, obviously, as a result of this. Um, Abram's responsive laughter leads to the naming of Isaac. Uh, The name of Isaac means laughter. We'll see in the next chapter as well that Sarah has um, a responsive laughter as well. When she's told about this, hers seems to be a little bit more tied to the doubt as to whether this could actually happen or not. Um, But then God does indicate to to Abram that he's heard his concerns and desires for Ishmael. And there's a play on words here. You'll remember that Ishmael means God hears. Uh, So when you look at uh, verse 20, it says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. There's a word play there. It's uh, the God who hears. I have heard you, Abram. Behold, I plan to bless your son. So uh, we see Isaac and Ishmael. There's both both have a. Um, a place in God's plan. Obviously, Isaac's set apart uh, a diff- in a different way than Ishmael, but both have God actively working in their life, and God plans to use Ishmael greatly. So the Almighty is the one who makes the covenant. Abram and Sarah and Isaac and their descendants will be the ones that inherit these promises. But then we come to the sign of the covenant that's described here. It says back in verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. All right, so the acceptance of the covenant, inclusion in the covenant, is shown through circumcision. Every boy on the eighth day following his birth is to be circumcised. Now, the, the, the act of circumcision, why God chooses to use this, uh, it points to the powers of procreation, obviously. Um, And what it reminds us, what it teaches us, is our need to be redeemed at the core. This is all about preserving a seed for the Messiah. Okay, so God is all about preserving a people to send Jesus through. All right, and so the message here is that we we are sinful and flawed at our very core of reproduction. We know this from Scripture, that we're born with a sin nature, that what's passed from Adam and Eve to us is a sinful nature that we cannot stop passing to others. And so this visual cutting away of the male organ is a reminder. It's a reminder that salvation has to happen at our very core, our very beginning, that we're conceived in sin. 
So Abram's told to accept this covenant through this sign of circumcision. Circumcision is the outward identification with the covenant. And it's for Jews and Gentiles. What we're told here in Genesis 17 is that it's not just for physical descendants of Abraham. That it's not just for those that will become known as Jewish people. This is for anybody that then becomes a part of the Jewish nation. So it's more about nationality versus ethnicity. All right. Uh, nations can be made up of people that come from various ethnic backgrounds. So people that would come and be a part of the nation of Israel, people like Rahab, people that were not originally a descendant of Abraham, that then get included in the nation of Israel, they too are to be included in this practice of circumcision. It's an outward identification with the covenant for both Jews and Gentiles. God's plan has always been to include Gentiles uh, into his family. This is another indicator of that. Gentiles being grafted into the Jewish nation is not strictly a New Testament understanding or concept. Even here, people were being grafted into the nation of Israel, and they were included in that covenant relationship through circumcision. All right? Some things that we, um, we learn from this passage. All right, circumcision did not originate in Genesis chapter 17. This is not the the first indication necessarily of circumcision. What we find in Jeremiah 9, verse 25, is that other nations practiced this. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt. Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So he he takes this idea that some of these people are circumcised. They're circumcised by the flesh. They, they, They have participated in this ritual, but they're not circumcised in the heart. It's an outward sign. It's supposed to be an outward sign of something that's happened internally. And what God's revealing here is that these people are outwardly circumcised, but not inwardly. We'll talk in a minute about what that means. Um, but there are, there are indicators through archaeology that this is not something that was completely um, reserved for Israelite people. Okay? This is something that was uh, practiced by other nations. Okay? Um, so it's not invented here. Secondly, circumcision was not always followed faithfully. Right? In Exodus 4, 24... Um, we're not going to talk about it today because it's a, it's a weird passage. Um, but Moses's wife gets really mad at the fact that he hasn't circumcised their son. And so she does it for him. Um, and it's just a really graphic scene there in her anger and how she kind of takes that out on Moses. So Exodus four is an indicator that even Moses wasn't fully following through with what he was supposed to do. And then in, um, Joshua five, before the children of Israel actually go into the promised land, you'll remember they had to walk around the desert so that everybody that was a certain age died before their kids would basically go in. And and the Bible tells us that at that point, nobody had been circumcised due to all the walking around. And so Joshua circumcises every male at that point before they go into the promised land to kind of regroup and everybody get back on the same page. None of us are circumcised. Everybody should be circumcised. Let's make this happen now. Okay? Um, So it wasn't always followed faithfully like it was supposed to be in um, Israel. Number three, it was never meant to replace obedience. So it was never a, a thing that could be done 
that then cleared you of any future obligations. In Romans chapter 2, verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So it was never meant to replace obedience. And then fourthly, circumcision was always meant to point to a greater spiritual reality. And this isn't something that just comes up in the New Testament. Okay, In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, this finds its, uh, its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter what did I say? 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So this idea of of seeing circumcision as an outward thing that's meant to picture something inwardly, that something has been cut away, a a sinful tendency being cut away from the heart Um, in Deuteronomy 30, verse six. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then in Jeremiah 4, 4. So circumcision in the Old Testament pointing to something greater to happen in an individual's life. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Okay? So Abram's acceptance of the covenant is seen through the act of circumcision and the spreading of his new name. Okay, so when we come to the end of Genesis chapter 17, God has once again revealed his plans to to bless Abram and Sarah, to bring a child to them. He's still going to take care of Ishmael. Abram demonstrates his faith in this. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. I can't imagine what that family meeting looked like. You know, he gathers all the men. He says, hey, I've heard from God. Got an update about the blessings that are coming. And I picture all the men being in a tent. He tells them, hey, my new name is Abraham. Let's make sure we all get that straight. And and secondly, for you to be included in this, here's what's got to happen. And I just picture all the men kind of flooding out of this tent, wide-eyed and Wives are saying, hey, how did it go? Like, what, what's going to happen? And this is what has to happen, right? And so it says that everybody has this happen all at the same time. I mean, this is an immediate response. Now, we're not told this, but there may have been some men that said, nope, like, I'm out. Like, I'm not sticking around for that to happen to me. I mean, Abram is 99 years old when this happens. Um, this, this would have been extremely painful for him. This would have been a, a real difficult thing. And then we know from other passages of scripture, this puts a man down for a while when this happens. This was an also an, 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 uh, an incredible amount of trust towards God that basically everyone that could protect the family right now is out of commission for a while. And we're completely trusting in God's provision and protection because we can't protect ourselves after doing this act towards all the men in our camp. 
Okay, so there's a, there's, a, there's a ton of faith here, I believe, by Abraham because he has to take this and pass this on to everybody. Um, this took a lot of faith by him um, to, to spread this news about his new name and the act of circumcision having to become a normal practice for them. Some things that we can learn about circumcision here. One, Abraham was saved prior to being circumcised. Okay, we've, we've already established that, but just as a reminder, Genesis chapter 15, um, he is believing God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And I think God very intentionally includes that in the text so that there's no confusion as to whether he was saved because of his circumcision. Okay, people in the Old Testament could be saved without being circumcised. Up to this point, there was no mandate to be circumcised. So people like Noah, Enoch, all right, these guys, Enish, these guys that were worshiping God and calling their families to corporate worship, Methuselah, Shem, all these guys, circumcised, we don't know, maybe not circumcised, but it was not a mandated thing. There was not a, a performance that they had to do in order to be saved. Secondly, the act of circumcision has never saved anyone. It's never saved anyone. In Acts chapter 15... This is the passage that we referenced in our quiz this morning. There's discussion about the importance of it. So it wasn't just a foregone conclusion that, that this was not to be something that continued. But in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this kind of plays out in Acts 15. So if you ever had a, a new believer reading through Scripture and started to question you about circumcision, is this something that has to be done to be saved? Acts 15 is the place to go because this is where the early church reconciled this issue. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees wrote up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Why would they think that? Because that's how they had been doing things. People that were brought into the nation of Israel were circumcised in the Old Testament. Okay, so they're wanting to continue this. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God had first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
Far from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You can continue to read through Acts 15 if you want to. The conclusion being that circumcision was not going to be mandated as a way to be saved. Essentially, because Paul and Barnabas come bearing witness, these people are already saved. They have the Holy Spirit. They are living like we are. They are responding the way that we are. They don't need this to be applied to them in order to be saved. These people are already saved. They're giving every indication. They're producing every fruit that we are without circumcision. We do not need to mandate this act upon them. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, after this decision, Paul, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? If you take this passage and then move to Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking that that the people in Galatia have been deceived or bewitched. They're under a spell, basically, believing that good works somehow get them to heaven. And then in Galatians 5, he correlates it to circumcision. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free, in Galatians 5.1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Far, uh, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then finally, in Galatians six fifteen, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Which leads to that third point. Circumcision has been accomplished in the life of all believers today. It's not something that we have to have done to ourselves. In Colossians chapter 2, we get the spiritual component of this. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here, the, the, the idea of circumcision is now applied to both male and female, and it's a spiritual circumcision that has happened for all believers. That the, the sinful aspects of who we are is being cut away, that we've been renewed, we're a new creation, that Christ has come in and, and cut away that flesh for us and has fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. The implications of this for us, first of all, is that Abram did not always understand the natural processes by which God would fulfill his promises but he was fully assured that what he had promised he was able to perform. Okay, so in all this chapter, 
The fact that he comes to him once again and reveals himself as the almighty God and changes his name and tells him that I'm going to bring you a son through Sarah. His name's going to be Isaac and he's coming in the next year. And you're to seal this. You're to understand this. You're to demonstrate faith in this through circumcision. It reminds us that Abram didn't always understand what was happening, but he he never seems to really waver in his faith and belief and trust and promises that were coming. Romans chapter four, we could call kind of the divine commentary on this passage. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, talking about Abram, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This story reminds us that natural laws are no barrier to the purposes and plans of God. This is kind of the historical understanding for us. It points us to a New Testament spiritual reality that Jesus has accomplished these things for us, that Christ serves as our circumcision, that he's cut away that sinful man. We have a new man that can be put on. But from an application standpoint, you know, looking at this and, and seeing this almighty God that comes, shows up and makes promises to Abraham that Abram holds to and, and continues to believe that God can fulfill Um, it left me kind of wondering, how does this apply to us understanding God as an almighty God who maybe doesn't always come through for us the way that we think that he should? Um, You know, here we have a couple, an older couple that desires children, that wants children, and God finally comes through because he's the almighty God and gives them children. We We may have couples in our church that desire children that God never blesses with a child. And they can pray and pray and pray for years and and God never brings a child into their life. We have single people in our church that I know desire to be married, that desire to have a family. And he's the almighty God that can provide a spouse that that, uh, makes it an equally yoked situation. And and the two of them could, could change the world radically. But there are single people that pray and pray and pray and God never brings a spouse to them. You know, the Conaways mentioned recently about the two-year-old who was diagnosed with leukemia and their, their family's grieving and working through that process. We serve an almighty God who can heal, who can heal any disease. But we also know that we serve a God that we pray to for those type of healings and they never come. Children die of cancer all the time. Christian families lose children all the time. How do we reconcile that? We're we're being told about an almighty God, and I can stand here and tell you that he's almighty, and he takes care of his children, and he fulfills promises. And I think the big key is understanding that that, there was a promise made to Abram and Sarah that they would have children. And for most married couples, they never received that promise, right? And so it would be wrong to hold God to fulfilling a promise that he never truly made. God's never promised that all of our children grow up healthy and, and, and live a, a life that gives them an old age. And so for our application this morning, I put in my notes, we must trust that God is mighty all of the time. 
whether he delivers from evil or works evil for good. And so here's what I want you to understand. God does a miraculous thing. And and, and scripture says this, that Abram and Sarah were as good as dead. They were incapable of having children together. That they had reached a point where there was no return. They could not have children. Hebrews 11 says that Sarah believed and God empowered her to conceive. I believe he empowers Abram to, to have the ability for her to conceive. And that takes a great and mighty God to do that. It takes a great and mighty God to heal a two-year-old of leukemia. It takes a great and mighty God to, to bring uh, individuals together into a marriage that glorifies him. All those things are mighty acts of God. But I think we do a disservice to think that that's the only way that God is mighty. Because the promise that we do have is that all things work together for good for those that love God, for those that are called according to his purpose. And it's no less mighty, it's no less mighty than for a mighty God to work in a couple's life who desperately wants children and never gives them a child for them to learn contentment and satisfaction in his goodness despite never receiving that earthly gift. That takes just as mighty of a God to work contentment into the lives of two individuals that desperately want something so bad and never receive it. Our God is mighty whether he delivers and provides certain things or whether he never does and instead works good in those situations. It takes a mighty God to heal a two-year-old from leukemia. It takes a mighty God to work good in a situation where a two-year-old dies of leukemia and that family has to grieve through that trial and that process. So I want us to to, to leave this chapter understanding that God reveals himself as the Almighty. And his almightiness, if that's even a word, is demonstrated in different ways. At times he comes through in miraculous ways and, and gives a child to an old man and an old woman. And there's plenty of other times where he doesn't come through in the way that we think would be the mighty way to come through. But what he has promised is that in his, in his almightiness, in his sovereign control over things, in his omnipotent power, is that he always works good. He always works good in situations. And that takes an almighty God to accomplish that. Because we can see the, the evil and the tragedies around us. And the only way that good can come from those things is if an almighty God's at work. So I want us to, to grasp that, or at least seek to grasp that concept as we leave this chapter this morning. Is that God came through in a big way. He's the Almighty God. He's the El Shaddai. And He provides in a way that He has promised. But for a lot of us, we haven't received those type of specific promises. But what we have been promised is that God works everything for good. And so as we've been talking about trials and t- tribulations in the midst of our Genesis discussion, it's a strong reminder to us today that we serve a God who's mighty all of the time. All of the time. Whether he delivers from evil and removes that, or whether he carries us through it. And we learn contentment and our faith is increased, as the book of Hebrews talks about, that the genuineness of our faith is tested. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chapter. Um, We thank you for this historical understanding of of how the nation of Israel was initially formed through Abram and Sarah. And God, how you took two people that were well past their prime. And you did a miraculous work in their life. 
you brought Isaac into being. God, we're thankful for this work. We're thankful for this chapter. We're thankful for the truth that that you saved Abram. You changed his name to Abraham to be a father of a multitude. And we're thankful that in the New Testament we we are told that by faith we become offspring. We become a part of that multitude. And so we're thankful that we can look back to Abraham who was saved without circumcision He was saved by putting his faith and trust in an almighty God who made promises and kept promises. And Father, we're thankful that in the New Testament we understand we are saved the exact same way. That there's no good work that could be accomplished in our life to save us. That circumcision won't save us, baptism won't save us, church attendance won't save us. God, we're thankful that you have made provision, that you have made a way for us to be saved through the complete work of Jesus Christ. And God, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself as an almighty God. And and we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we hear accounts from others in our life of the great and mighty works and deeds that you have done. God, help us to never wonder or question if you're only almighty some of the times. Help us to never wonder or question whether there are times when you just fail to show up. We know you're a God of healing. We know you don't always heal. We know you're a God of provision, but you don't always provide in the ways that we expect you to or think that you should. But God, help us to never waver in believing that you're an almighty God all of the time. Father, help us to be reminded that oftentimes you show yourself to be almighty in carrying us through the things that we want to be delivered from. Help us to realize that that you are almighty in that you turn everything in our life for good. And help us never to confuse the fact that the promise is not only good things happen to Christians. Help us to understand and realize that the promise is that everything that happens turns out to be good. We thank you that you're an almighty God who possesses the sovereign wisdom and power to ensure that promise always happens for us as your children. Father, I pray that as we leave today, as we encounter new things this week, circumstances and situations that that we're not anticipating, Father, we're thankful that an almighty God goes before us who's made promises that he plans to keep forever. God, we praise you and thank you and we worship you for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.